0: Well, every fortnight we catch up with our great friends at Freshwater Strategy to drill down into the business of sport and Rugby Australia, well, they have some business decisions to make. And Leo Shanahan is the director of Freshwater Strategy, pleased to say he's on the line right now. G'day, Leo. G'day, Julian. How are you going? I'm going very well. You know, I made the point uh, during the voice debate that everybody suddenly cared about the constitution. Now, given the mess that is rugby in this country, we're all of a sudden interested in the game they play in heaven. And look, granted, us as commentators, uh, we tend to be wiser after the event, don't we? I've got to say, you know, given the events of this week, I didn't mind initially the appointment of Eddie Jones. But the more that is revealed, any way you dissect it looks to have been a mistake.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the results speak for themselves. Obviously, Julian getting knocked out before the quarterfinals in the pool stages for the first time is a disaster as far as the World Cup result goes. And even the way that his contract was structured in a manner that gave him the ability to leave uh, if they didn't attract that private equity investment, you could argue that you know he could all, he always had one foot out the door. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it it does look to be rather disastrous in retrospect, especially the the haste with which he was appointed and uh, the rather unceremonious booting of his predecessor, who, in retrospect, uh, looks like a success.
0: Mm -hmm. With regards to private equity, do you think the game overrated or overvalued its product?
1: I think they were asking for a lot of money and obviously the process uh, was leaving something to be desired and there wasn't enough detail on the table for the private equity investors, albeit they were gonna get a larger chunk that was on offer that uh, Silver Lake took out of New Zealand. But uh, obviously uh, it is concerning uh, that the process wasn't successful. You'd still think that a global product uh and brand like the wallabies and rugby union in australia could attract some level of in- investment like that and it is concerning that it was ultimately a failure now that's not to say they won't have some success
0: in the coming years but uh, nonetheless it's concerning i wonder you know in hindsight the eddie jones appointment was something of a hail mary move whether they had hoped that the additional publicity that that brought which it did let's be honest in in the opening few months yeah. whether that would sort of spike interest in a private equity sense
1: yeah well i mean the problem is that publicity in of itself doesn't make for good results on the field mm. and i think there was a there was a slight obsession with pulling in the big names bringing over some rugby league players um you know bringing over Eddie jones when fundamentally uh, these were they weren't entirely publicity stunts. Obviously, they cost a lot of money and they were they was were, they were with an eye to structural change. But um, if the results aren't there, well, you're going to struggle. And, um, you know, you can't be, you, you can't govern uh, on a publicity inspired basis. It has to have um, a lot more substance to it. Now, obviously, there are attempts to do that. Who knows? I mean, there's there's this whole debate now about centralisation um, of the Super Rugby uh, competition. If that's a success, perhaps there'll be some light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, once again, there's all
0: sorts of problems with that. I'll get on to centralisation in a moment. And as I said, I, I thought the Jones appointment was probably a bit worth taking. And there's a fascinating piece in the, the Nine Papers today Day by Tom Decent and Ian Payton, speaking to a couple of the players who spoke anonymously to the masthead. They said, look, they loved Dave Rennie. They liked where they were going, but they figured, well, okay, if we're going to change a coach, then they're okay with Eddie Jones, uh, given his history and his reputation. So from that perspective, yeah, okay, maybe it wasn't the worst gamble, but you take a step back, Leo, the whole arrangement now just seems so dysfunctional, given all these get-out clauses and the apparent lack of delivery on those conditions. And I think in that respect, you know, Eddie, I think, got the contract that he wanted, but surely there's got to be culpability on behalf of Hamish McLennan and Rugby Australia here.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, that's where the finger's pointing now, right? I mean, it it, it got at the top and, you know, we're talking about, yes, another review into Australian rugby, Andrew Slack, Dustin Harrison will be part of that. You know, you just wonder what this review is going to say um, in terms of, of, of the board and, and, and the chair, um, because, People are rightly quite ropeable about it. I mean, the City Morning Herald the other day editorialised saying Hamish um, McQuillan had to go as well. Um, I don't see that happening in the short term, but you know, it's it, it is a concern that how how does Rugby Australia find its way out of this um, with with this plan that was that was so. Um, uh, so well publicised just has come to nothing. And you've got a and we're supposed to be hosting the World Cup in twenty twenty seven. Uh, so you'd only hope that by then, uh, whoever the coach is by then, yeah. perhaps there's some there's some results and uh, some success to lead us into that. We've got a Lions tour before that again. You could only you know, you do only imagine how the current wallabies would face up against a Lions
0: squad. <laughs> well I think first and foremost the game needs people to care about it again we've heard this term centralization you know so you mm-hmm. talk about these reviews and and say, like, okay what do we need to do to fix the game in this country well you keep hearing this term centralization it's not the silver bullet I think people are assuming it's going to be it should make things better everybody notionally is on board including the super rugby clubs but a couple of them do have some reservations
1: yeah I mean this week there were reports that the Brumbies uh, had sent legal letters to Rugby Australia uh, because they had sent in auditors uh, to Canberra to have a, another look at their books. Uh, the Brumbies maintain they're in a healthy financial position, albeit lacking uh, funds from a broadcast deal that they still claim their own. That was turned into a loan, uh, not, um, uh, not 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 uh, revenue as as they had hoped, and. There is concerns that maybe Rugby Australia had, had some plan to take over the Brumbies and even relocate them. There had been talk for years that perhaps the Brumbies could relocate to Melbourne. You'd take out the Rebels and have a have a stronger Melbourne team. I don't see how that would work yeah. uh, or where you'd really locate them to. I grew up in Canberra and it is one of the few kind of rugby Cities, in a way, um, albeit with a lot of competition, but it does have a strong rugby culture, and the Brumbies are central to that. So, there does seem to be some agreement on how centralization would uh, take place in conditioning, contracting, uh, and a few other things, but not a total takeover of those clubs. And it would, it, it leaves this question of, you know, how do you attract private investment in a in, in a competition that is then going to be, you know, potentially taken over by Rugby Australia uh, that, uh, you know, frankly, does not have a great track record at the moment. So how do you, how do you attract talent and investment in that competition? I think does Australia go down a path of France whereby you have private ownership, you, you, you open it up, the the National uh, the national um, Association effectively stays out of that. And, you know, I, I think there's good arguments why that should be the case. Um, but then you get this argument, oh, well, in New Zealand and Ireland, you know, they've done this centralization, it's worked, but yeah. not to the same, arguably not to the same extent that they're talking about in Australia. South Africa, once again, has a different model, but... Um, you know, what is going to work for Australia in the long term. And you have to have a competition, ultimately, that's viable, that attracts eyeballs, that attracts talent. And, um, you know, that's going to come
0: with private investment. Restructuring is one thing, you know, you've got to think twice about tearing the whole house down. Understandably, there's a bit of scepticism around private equity or private investment. That's not necessarily something to be scared of. But I guess the question is, rightly, that people are asking, well, you know, If there is private investment, surely the buyers or potential owners still have profit motives. Can we guarantee that any money they make is going to be funnelled back into the development of said game?
1: Well, I mean, it's the way that private equity operates is large amounts of money invested in the first instance. And then you you take the profitability from that uh, back out of your investment. Now, it's premised upon greater success, because it has to be, because yeah. otherwise your investment is, is, is gone to waste. So I think there is an inherent, um, uh, there's an inherent uh, uh, force on on private investment to actually make things more viable. Now, this it go to the grassroots, you'd have to guarantee in a large element of that in any kind of private investment, whether that's with the clubs, the super clubs, or with, uh, or with Rugby Australia.
0: It's this ongoing debate about, you know, the best system, whether it's top down or, or bottom up. And speaking of private equity or private investment, I know cricket's explored this a number of times. A big bash when it first launched had considered it. Andrew Jones, who was the New South Wales cricket boss at the time, was vehemently against it. And I think he's been vindicated with that decision, given the growth of each individual franchise. I, I think also Cricket Australia a bit concerned from memory, Leo, that you know given their revenue share structure, that they didn't want to, hand over a certain amount of money to private investors?
1: Yeah, and I think they've just passed on this in their recent board meeting. They've decided to stick with uh, a debt structure uh, for the time being. Uh, they had toyed with this idea of, of further private investment in the game. Look, for them, I think Cricket Australia, that's, that's, that's one, you know, that's an understandable move. But I think for the Big Bash League, you know, the Big Bash, how's it going to compete with these global leagues? That are privately owned that have a lot more investment. Um, you know, at the moment, the Big Bash is struggling to compete with some some minor uh, twenty twenty competitions around the world, let alone the big ones like the like the English Premier League. David Warner's been given a pass to go and um, play in 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 Dubai, missing some Australian games in early next year. Now. Um, that's because they accept that they can't hold on to him, and that it's going to be, you know, bringing some new talent into the team. But how does how does the big bash compete long term in this current structure? And I think there needs to be evaluation of that. Otherwise, it, it, as a product, will will continue to suffer. Mm.
0: You know, I guess one advantage Australia has is that their their centralised contract structure is still very competitive. You know, it's it's funny because England was the birthplace of T20 cricket. They didn't take it seriously. It came to the point where players are saying, no, I'm not going to play for England. I've got a short window in which to ply my trade. I'll take the riches here. To the point where they had to shift the start of their summer so their players were available for the IPL. You know, that was their new reality. Yeah. And there
1: is talk about the English selling off uh, one of their leagues, or the 100, uh, I I believe it's called. The the, the 100, (laughs) yes. The 100. So, you know, it's, it's another... Slightly uh, confusing format, but um, so there is talk about selling that off privately. But yeah, I mean, as I said, globally, Australia is now—you know—can it even compete with you know the Pakistan or West Indies Twenty Twenty competition, let alone India, and that's going to be a, a reoccurring problem yeah. for them to to attract the, the talent and the crowds and that and that broadcast revenue.
0: Correct, and South Africa and all through you know the UAE and that that part of the world as well i guess the other thing too is that you know they're, they're building brands around your stars and your sixes and the rest of it you know if for example ipl clubs want to expand their reach you know are people going to identify with you know the sydney night riders for example
1: yeah and i think you know with what that would entail quite possibly um that could be an exciting expansion of of, of these really successful ipl brands you've seen it around the world these of these franchises so that could be successful and it gives it a global kind of um a global take uh, i don't think anyone's particularly married to the current you know big bash franchises as they stand if there was to be name changes and investment with that the type of players it could attract uh, why not
0: mm. and we could see it down the track uh... A scenario where players are contracted to these various franchises and then they're farmed out to wherever their team may be across the globe, be that Australia or South Africa or India. So these are all possibilities. Fascinating discussion, Leo. Always good to get your thoughts. Thanks, Julian. There he is, Leo Shanahan, Director of Freshwater Strategy.